Welcome to Voice for Choice podcast, the podcast that focuses on China issues with special attention to the Central and Eastern European perspective. I'm your host, Karanya Mechkova. Joining me today is Ingrid Duch. Hello and welcome. Good morning. She's the coordinator of the Klingendal China Center and Leiden Asia Center Senior Fellow. She conducts research on China's foreign policy and diplomacy and on higher education and science collaboration with China. With a study background in Sinology and over 30 years of experience in working with China, seven years of which she spent in Beijing and Shanghai, Ingrid is an experienced advisor to Dutch government organizations, the European Commission, and European research institutions. Today, we will be discussing Ingrid's new report, which looks at national approaches to strengthening knowledge security and the forces that drive them in nine countries. Hi, Ingrid. What I usually do with my guests is set the mood first and get a sense of their personal background, what shaped their China experience. What was your first impression of China when you arrived there? Yeah, hi, Kara. A very nice question. I first went to China in 1985 as a young student, a very different China. I arrived at the end of summer and my first impression was a very lively country. People were eating outside uh, too late into the night. They had carried their tables and chairs outside. There was no air conditioning yet in most homes. And people were lively, interested, uh, curious. They were willing to talk with me. So very pleasant, um, very pleasant experience. I was so excited. Do you remember the moment when you decided to focus on China professionally? Was that this early on? Well, I was, of course, studying China. And then my first job was at the Netherlands Embassy in Beijing. And from that time onward, I always stayed in, in China-related work. And once you build more experience, you decide that that is the area you want to spend the rest of your career in. I once uh, ventured out for one year. I did a different project, but I missed working on China so much that I decided it, it had to be China. And that is why we are sitting here today yes, discussing exactly. uh, your new report. Um, You already published a report on Europe-China collaboration in higher education and research in 2018. You brought a very important topic to the spotlight, which was neglected for a very long time. I'm wondering, how has the landscape and the discussion in Europe changed since then? What, what are you observing? It has changed very much. At the time, it was one of the first, if not the first, um, study on this topic in Europe. So people were not yet that familiar with the issue. Uh, it, it was new, people were surprised, or they said, well, maybe you are just exaggerating. Uh, there was reluctance to accept uh, the possibility of risks in that collaboration. Only a few years before, people had been told to go out and establish collaboration with China. So there was surprise, but also a lot of interest in the topic and in a number of countries it, it helped it feed into an already developing discussion if i look now uh, i see most countries are very much aware of the risks and as we describe in our report they have been developing approaches to address these risks in international collaboration uh, so so now the discussion is about uh, details about how then to protect uh, research uh, collaboration the, the the security of it uh, 
but at the other hand also how to keep collaborating with countries around the globe and in uh, specifically uh, China. Across the nine countries studied, knowledge security is conceptualized in different ways. You use the Dutch definition, which includes elements of knowledge security, such as preventing undesirable knowledge transfer, protection of academic freedom, and ensuring ethical practices. What were some of the differences that you found between the different national cases and how they reflect on the approach? Yes, yeah, so we see different uh, wording being used, and some countries use a specific definitions through all their documents. In some countries, uh, it is mixed, uh, and, and every department or every organization uses a different words. Um, a number of countries uses the word security, which of course securitizes the collaboration. Uh, other countries speak about foreign interference, or they try to avoid such a negative uh, connotations. They, for example, speak about research integrity or um, broader concepts of um, uh, research uh, freedom. Uh, so there is a, a big uh, difference in, in the conceptualization, and this reflects also very much the national context uh, of the country. For example, countries in which there are high-profile cases of foreign interference, they often use the term foreign interference. Uh, in other countries, uh, just like the Netherlands, there is quite a large focus on uh, preventing the undesirable transfer of knowledge. So the security aspect is very strong. So we have knowledge security as, as a theme. So it reflects both the national context as well as uh, the way an approach is developed and the focus of the approach. For each case study, you first looked at the national context, uh, including the specific political environment and governance structure and geopolitical profile. Can you give us a concrete example of how a specific national context affect the approach that was chosen? It's a, a very good uh, question. Uh, in, in some countries, it is like the governance structure. For example, in Germany, uh, in Germany, the federal government doesn't have competency in the area of education. Uh, so you see uh, a large involvement of uh, the research sector. It's very much a bottom-up approach. Uh, in other countries, it's a geographical location, for example, Australia and Japan, uh, but also Taiwan. They are close to China. In case of uh, Japan and Australia, they have large groups of, Japan, uh, sorry, of Chinese uh, students and uh, professors. So there the focus is uh, quite... Uh, quite on China as a specific country, although their approaches may be officially in name country neutral, it's still China uh, as a driving force behind that. Uh, so there are different ways in, in how a national context shapes uh, the approach. As you just mentioned, in Germany, there is a bottom-up approach. In other cases, uh, you described a top-down approach. Can you conclude which approach is better Or does it depend entirely on the national context? We don't know yet, because there are not yet uh, large-scale evaluations of these, uh, of these different approaches. 
So what we see is in top-down approaches, it's very difficult to engage the research uh, community and researchers may be reluctant, may neglect these uh, regulations or try to avoid them. Um, whereas in bottom-up approaches, the research community is engaged. They are willing to think about ways to still keep the collaboration going, but nevertheless ensure that it's safe and sound. Uh, but these approaches are often less enforced by national government. government. So it's also possible to neglect, so to discuss it and say, oh yes, we have to deal with these risks, but at the same time uh, put these guidelines aside. So we don't know yet. And it seems that a combination of both, where you do engage the research community, but at the same time enforce certain regulations, uh, may work best. And we see that, for example, in Australia, but also in the United Kingdom, where there are some strict uh, measures, uh, especially in Australia, there are, there's a transparency scheme regulation where um, universities have to disclose or register their international collaboration. But at the same time, in Australia, the guidelines have been developed in close collaboration and with a lot of engagement from the research sector. So maybe a combination of uh, both uh, will work best. If there is no enforcement or no, let's say, push uh, at all, it is very easy just to neglect all the regulations because most researchers do not want to think about security issues or political issues. They just want to do uh, their research uh, with the best uh, available researchers or with those that provide the funding. That's their main goal. So you have to find this balance in the approach. Within the top-down approach, there is a multitude of approaches that differ in form and content, uh, ranging from informal roundtables to regulations. Do you think it's better to go for a more legally binding approach or for a more informal mechanism? Before I give some examples, uh, maybe in, in general, it's, it's good to mention that many researchers, but also university policymakers, actually ask for very clear regulations and even ask uh, governments to make them binding. Um, at the same time, researchers treasure their autonomy and universities uh, treasure their independence. So this is also something you have to find a balance between. If we look at the approaches uh, we have researched, for example, Finland is the most um, voluntarily uh, developed approach with roundtables discussing the issues, but not yet real regulations or, or guidelines, let alone legislation. And there the question is, is this awareness enough to make researchers take into account uh, security matters when they develop collaboration. Uh, in other countries, um, if, if it's very top-down, then the implementation may still be difficult. Uh, for example, in France, all contracts, international contracts, are being screened, but it's unclear if this screening is more a matter of routine and very superficially looked at or whether they really delve deeply into these contracts. So it is difficult at this moment to really draw conclusions. That's, that's also what we say in our report. We have to wait for good evaluations. 
If you look at Australia, there the national guidelines have been extensively evaluated, they have been adapted, and there you do see on the one hand that there is a need for some regulation and, and binding uh, approaches. At the same time, when the evaluation and, and new regulations were under discussion, the research sector pushed for not too strong binding, not too strongly binding regulation. So I think many countries are still trying to find a balance. And then there's something in between really binding legislation or a push from the government to um, to implement regulations by, for example, um, inquiring every six months uh, at the university level what has been done or asking universities to send in their risk uh, assessment proposals, their risk assessment frameworks. Uh, countries are looking for different solutions and one complaint by universities is that they do not have the knowledge and the manpower to really delve into uh, into security issues surrounding one particular collaboration. If it pertains to China, for example, many universities do not have Chinese speakers in the house or people can read Chinese. So in, in the Netherlands, for example, the government has established a contact point for um, research security and universities can submit their proposals, send in their proposals, and they are being assessed uh, by government organizations. And um, there is the result is an advice that goes to the university. It's not a binding advice. It's also not an advice saying you should not uh, collaborate, but it lists uh, possible risks entailed in the collaboration, and then it's up to the university to make their own decisions. But this takes away the burden for universities to develop this knowledge and to delve deep into a particular area of collaboration. So this seems very helpful uh, for university to have this at the national level. It also is very efficient. It's not that every university has to find out uh, for themselves. Uh, so this is a possible way to assist universities, make it more um, feasible for them to really assess uh, collaboration risks and also to intimidate then a discussion at the university about that particular uh, project. You write in the study that most of the national approaches are state agnostic, yet uh, they have been developed with China in mind. When evaluating and comparing them, what are some pros and cons of the state agnostic and spe state specific approaches? It is not that simple because it is not just uh, China. Indeed, China in many cases is an important driver, but also in many countries. Uh, there are also concerns about collaboration uh, with Russia, especially in Eastern Europe, but also, for example, a country like Finland. And in many European countries, there are also concerns about collaboration with the United States, uh, for example, uh, Turkey, Iran. So it is not only China. Uh, but it is an important driver. So that's why many countries opt for a country-neutral approach, uh, except for Finland, who has now China-specific guidelines. It is also because uh, countries, but also researchers, feel that it, it would discriminate against uh, all Chinese uh, professors and researchers, many of whom are not 
involved in uh, spying or interfering or uh, in, in tech transfers. Also, from a legal perspective, uh, it is better to have uh, a country-neutral uh, approach. So these are the main reasons. On the other hand, in the risks, uh, these risks sometimes are country-specific, and the knowledge you need to have to assess a project, uh, to assess the risks involved, you need this country-specific knowledge. So, in, in fact, the best approach would be to have these very broad uh, guidelines, but then still uh, underneath have some country-specific extra guidelines or checklists, uh, so to speak. And I think this is what is, uh, in fact, uh, the case uh, in practice in many countries. What are some of the best practices that you observed that you really think could increase effectiveness of knowledge security? What we found is, first, it's very important to engage the research community because in the end, they have to apply the, the guidelines. And if they don't want to, it's very difficult to force them. So you need these bottom-up approaches. In some cases, they also know best how to assess uh, risks. So that's important. And secondly, the approach should be detailed and practical, because very general guidelines that are not translated to the work situation of the researchers or university policymakers are, are too vague and nobody knows what to do with it. So they should be practical. Uh, they should be coherent in some countries. For example, United States, there are many uh, regulations and guidelines being put forward. Sometimes they're contradictory. So that doesn't help. Uh, in some countries, a change uh, of the administration has led to a new approach, and then people are confused. So having a coherent approach is very important. And then something else we haven't discussed uh, very much yet is um, many researchers say we should not just have um, risk management, we should also have uh, opportunity management. If we look at China, China is a very important academic partner for most countries uh, in Europe. They fund a lot of research, but also in many research areas, they are uh, top-notch right now. So we need this uh, collaboration and research, researchers tell us, yes, we are willing to take into account the risks, but then also provide us with uh, options for collaboration and opportunities for collaborations and tell us which areas are safe for collaboration and which areas uh, should be avoided. So they ask also for a proactive opportunity management and we do not see that yet in many countries. Some, some countries have red-listed areas for collaboration but they have not yet green-listed areas for collaboration. So to find a balance between the two, that's also something that would be very helpful to um, make guidelines acceptable to the research community. Another best practice is actually the establishment of an organization that facilitates a direct communication and coordination between the government sector and the research uh, sector. This is done, for example, in Australia and United Kingdom. And they also facilitate contact with the intelligence services, which may have important information about risks. Uh, so, so this works very well. In some countries, the research community is giving 
given also financial support to de develop awareness uh, programs. So this really gives ownership to the research community to think about research security. That works very well. And maybe as a last example of a best practice, I would like to mention uh, both Germany and Japan who are investing very much in international collaboration on research security. They do it in G7 context. There is a working group, uh, G7 working group on research security, research integrity, and they try to develop common standards, common definitions. And this is very important because uh, international collaboration doesn't it's usually it's not between just two countries. Often many countries uh, are involved and then it's important to be on the same page. And I think also in particular within the European Union, we should develop this collaboration. I think there are some first initiatives in that direction. So this, this is certainly also a best practice. This brings me to my next question. Do you think there is a sustainable way to safeguard our research uh, moving forward without killing the cooperation with China in those areas completely? Because if uh, in the countries that choose to um, have these approaches to safeguard research, perhaps China will go with its funding somewhere else. That's true. But China is looking for often looking for a specific uh, high-level collaboration in specific research areas. So this is not something they can find just anywhere in the world. They are often targeting specific institutions in specific uh, countries. Uh, so that, that's something we do not have to be uh, afraid of. I, I think there are many opportunities to still build and develop this collaboration. China says it wants to invest in further internationalization of their academic uh, research and, and higher education sector. Many researchers like to collaborate with China because China provides funding, has really top-notch uh, facilities, uh, very good uh, researchers. There's still a pool of talent uh, available in China, although China also says it has shortages of good uh, researchers. Um, and if we can find a balance between looking at the risks, but also looking at the opportunities and provide researchers with clear guidelines, which will not cost too much of their time, adhering to it will not take too much of their time. And if they can internalize certain risk assessment uh, measures, I think it's still possible to work towards a very fruitful collaboration. And I think we need that, uh, but we also need to become more strategic about this. And it would also be good if researchers understand that also in the long term for the competitiveness of their own research institutes, it is good to take uh, security risks uh, in consideration. Your study looks at measures and regulations aimed specifically at universities and public research institutions. Do you think it would be useful to conduct a similar study uh, in the private sector looking at more commercial research and development? I, I would say we need further research into um, corporate R&D. It is an area we did not look at in our uh, study. 
I guess the same issues are at play in, in this sector with huge uh, commercial consequences. So I, I would call for further study into that area. And I, I can imagine we need similar guidelines uh, for this. What we also found in our study is that in some countries, uh, research security is closely connected to economic security which indeed looks at these risks of the risks of R&D. And I, I think we will see in the near future also some guidelines or more risk assessment in corporate uh, research and development. I have one final question for you that I ask everybody. What would be your advice uh, for young China scholars? My advice would be go to China, take time to get to know the country, do not just study in your university and spend your time on campus, but go out and travel to all corners of the country. China is so big, there's so much variety. It's so important to meet all kinds of people, to talk with them. So go, da go out and uh, discover the country. On that note, if you are a young professional or a student from Europe, interested in China or China's relations with Europe, you can submit your latest work to Choice as part of our Future Choice initiative. For more information, check our website www.chinaobservers.eu. Thank you so much for joining me today and presenting your study. My pleasure. Thank you. This was Voice for Choice. If you would like to know more about our work, please do visit our website at chinaobservers.eu. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope you'll make the right choice and tune in for the next episode of Voice for Choice.